Welcome to the NC4 Podcast. We exist to know Christ and make Him known. Discover the power of a connected life by listening to this message from God's Word. I believe the Lord is telling us it's time to invest in joy. It's time to invest in joy. It's time to rebuild the walls so that we can flourish as a community. And so our series is called Rejoy. It's, a, it's both about joy, but it's about recovering, rediscovering our joy. And so we're looking at the letter of Philippians. It's a letter that's full of joy. And we're looking at seven aspects of joy throughout this series. And I would argue today's the second message in that series. And I would argue that joy is always relational. Because joy has been defined Here's a definition of joy. It's the look in someone's eyes when they're glad to see you. It's that sparkle in someone's eyes when they're glad to see you. And that may sound like a really Christian-y thing to say. That's the definition of a, of a psychologist out of UCLA. And I really like that definition because it's something you can think of. You can imagine that. Otherwise, joy becomes this kind of bit of a ethereal thing. So joy is always relational because joy is that thing that you see in someone's eyes when they're glad to see you. And so in that sense, I would say we're actually made for joy. Why? Because God made us to glorify him in the same way that the Trinity is constantly glorifying one another, each member of the Trinity looking in the other's face and, and sparkling with joy, delighting in each other. That's what the Trinity has enjoyed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. And so you can't have joy without relationship. And the thing is, if we long for joy, if you look at the human heart, I think we long for a joy that never comes to an end. And if that's true, don't you see that is a desire that can only be fulfilled in God himself. If joy is relational and we desire a joy that never comes to an end, that can only be fulfilled in a person that never comes to an end. And who can that be but God? And so we're made for joy. The Westminster Catechism said, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Why? Because when you enjoy something, what do you do? You glorify it. You praise it. You, you, you magnify it. That's what God desires from us. Not only obedience, but our joy. So I, I could do a whole message just on that because in the book of Deuteronomy, God lays down some pretty heavy judgment on his people when they serve him without joy. But that's, that's for another day. So last week we looked at the joy of friends. And this week, we're going to be carrying on in that text in Philippians chapter 1. And the title today is Joy at the Proclamation. Joy at the Proclamation. So we're going to read from Philippians 1, starting from verse 12 to 18. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. Remember, Paul is writing this from prison in Rome. As a result, it's become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of the brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. 
It's true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I'm in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. And that's really the core of our message is those last few words there. Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. Now, I want you to put yourself in Paul's shoes. Imagine yourself in Paul's life. You are a highly educated, successful in your career, gaining recognition quickly among the Jews, and then you become a Christian in this radical thing, and you, be, you, you quickly gain recognition and authority within the new church, so much so that you're correcting Peter, you know, Jesus's right-hand man, and, and you're pioneering all these new mission fields, you're planting dozens of churches, you're raising up these world-shaking leaders, and then in the last chapter of your life, you're illegally detained. You're thrown into prison, and you're awaiting trial. So he's held without trial for years on end. And then he's shipped to Rome where he's sitting in this prison awaiting execution. Or at least trial. But we know that it ended in execution. So imagine that's, that's, that's the trajectory of your life and ministry, your career in the church. I wonder what view you would take of your life, your career, if you were in Paul's situation? Would you see it as kind of a waste? Would you see it as a tragic cutting short of all the potential? You know, Paul had these dreams in his heart. He wanted to go to Spain. He wanted to, and maybe he did, maybe he made it there. But there were all these things in his heart that he was stopped from being able to do as a result of being imprisoned. Do you think if you were in his shoes, it might have the potential to rob your joy? I think so. Now, what do you think his critics were saying? See, we were right all along. Paul's not a man of God. God would have given him success. God would have taken him, you know, out of the Romans' hands if he were really in God's favor. And so he's getting what he deserved. And yet... Paul's facing all this potential disappointment, all the cutting short of his plans and dreams and desires. His critics are having a field day. And what does he say? Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. That's Paul's attitude in the final chapter of his life here. And so if you know the story of Paul at all, you know that Paul is an evangelist. You know, this is what he you know, breathe day in and day out. And so it's, if you know any evangelists, there's a few gifted evangelists among us. If you know an evangelist, you know they love to preach the gospel. They just love it. Nothing gets them fired up like preaching the gospel. And so it's natural if you're an evangelist to love preaching the gospel. But notice what Paul's talking about here. He's not actually talking about his own preaching the gospel. It's in the passive voice. You remember the one your English teacher always told you not to use? Don't, you know, don't use the passive voice. Well, Paul says, Christ is preached. If I were correcting his essay, I would say, Paul, you should really turn that to, you know, 
I preach Christ or something. But Christ is preached. He's not talking about his own joy in preaching. He's talking about his joy in the mere fact that the message of Jesus is going out. Whether he's doing it or not, he rejoices that the gospel is going out. And so this is the driving passion of Paul's life. And in fact, I won't skip a few verses down, but if you go to verse 21, he says to live is Christ. In other words, Paul defines his very life as Jesus. This is the definition of his life. And so he looks at his circumstances, he sees everything that's happening, and he says, if this is producing more proclamation of the gospel, then I rejoice. My life hasn't been stopped short. My effectiveness hasn't been stopped short. If, if Christ is my life and Christ's name and his good news is spreading more because of my suffering, well then, more life is happening. Because my definition, uh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but huh, he has reason for joy. Now, I, you know, I already asked you the question, but I, I would venture to say for most of us, if we were in his shoes, we probably wouldn't be on the same page with him. We'd probably be a little more caught up in the circumstances and, and the disappointment. And, and I think that's natural. But here's the thing. What if the gospel could become the driving force of our life, just like it was Paul's? What if that could happen? Where we could sit, imagine, where we could sit in a jail cell for our faith and not rail, but rejoice. Not rail against the, you know, political party that put us there. And by the way, Christians have been imprisoned both under leftist regimes and rightist regimes. That's the history of Spain, by the way. Ultra conservative, imprisoned all sorts of evangelical Christians. And so, would we be sitting there railing against the, the circumstances or would we be rejoicing like Paul does? Well, I want to ask, how can we recover that kind of joy? How do we get what he had? And why is it joyful to proclaim the gospel, to see it proclaimed? So, so those are some of the questions we want to ask. And I think there's at least, in this passage, there's at least five things that we have to know there's five essential truths that we have to know in order to have that kind of joy. Five necessary truths that cultivate our joy at the proclamation of God's word. So before we get to the first one, I want to ask why, if you notice in this passage, Paul uses the words proclamation and preaching as interchangeable. And I think usually we think of those things as, as different. You know, preaching maybe is what I'm doing right now. Proclamation might be something that someone on a street corner is doing. And actually, it's helpful that Paul puts it in those terms because they are very much interchangeable in the way that Scripture talks about what preaching is. Preaching is proclamation. And so it's, it's helpful to think of it that way because preaching, in a way, has become everything and nothing at the same time. Almost anything could be labeled preaching, but at its heart— Preaching the gospel is simply proclaiming the good news about Jesus. It's simply proclaiming good news. Because if you think about it, 
Think about what news is. News is something you proclaim. It's something you declare. It's something that you state as a fact, as a reality. That's what you do. If you think of news headlines, all right? So headlines, when they're doing what they're supposed to do, headlines state what happened. That's their job. The headline, last, not last week, the week before, we showed the video of some of the, the origins of this church. And there was a, there was a newspaper article in the, in the morning call about New Covenant moving from Linden Street to here. And it says, church converts supermarket aisles into ones for believers, which I think is a terrible headline. But it's simply a statement of fact right? It's a, it's a proclamation of something that's happened. And so now I'm not saying believe every headline you read, okay? Not saying that, right? But what I'm saying is that the nature of news is that it's something that you state. It's not really something that you sell. It's not something you use to persuade someone. It's, it's, it's simply proclaimed, and I think a really good ex- example of this, last month we celebrated Juneteenth, and you think of the, the Emancipation Proclamation, 1863. What was that? It was a message of good news to the enslaved, and the message was this, you are free. That was a new reality that had shifted. As of that decree from, from the highest levels of government, as of that decree, a new reality has started, and guess what? You are free. I mean, there's really, I mean, that is the gospel. (laughs) That is the gospel. Obviously, in a universe-changing way, that is the gospel. Because what happens is you hear that truth proclaimed and you're all become aware of a new state of reality. You are free. In Christ, you are free from slavery to sin. And so it's simply a statement of fact. The good news is is not really, you know, Christianity is not really a religion. Christianity is a piece of news. Jesus is Lord. That's the headline. That's the headline that Paul was proclaiming all through the Roman Empire, which is exactly why he got in so much trouble. Because the Roman Empire said, Caesar is Lord. Paul goes around and says, reality's changed. Jesus is Lord. And so, when it comes to the good news of Jesus Christ, we're, we're, we're talking very simply about the statement of a fact. Humanity in Christ is now free from sin. Free from slavery to sin. And so here's the first thing that Paul knew that we need to rediscover to have the kind of joy that he had at the, the proclamation of the gospel. And it's this, there is no such thing as a hindered gospel. There's no such thing as a hindered gospel. When you read the book of Acts, this is, These are the last couple verses of the book of Acts. It says, He lived there in jail two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Without hindrance. So as we're reading through this whole book, you got to, Keep in mind where Paul is that he's writing this. He's writing this probably, we think, from the Mamertine prison in, 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 in Rome, awaiting his trial before Caesar. And so the way it worked is that he wasn't just in a jail cell locked up. He would actually be chained 24-7, shackled to a Roman soldier. And because he had appealed to Caesar, it turns out he was actually 
shackled to some of the palace guards, Caesar's own personal soldiers. And so that's why he says, I've been given the opportunity to preach to the palace guard. So he's in prison and Caesar's guard is watching him at all times. Outside the prison in Rome, Paul had already written a letter to the Roman church years before. And so the Jewish community in Rome is all stirred up and Paul is the, the main sticking point. He is the thing that all the uproar is about. And yet, even though there's all this controversy about him and some people, some Jews are, are turning to Christ and some are rejecting him, Paul is stuck in this cell. He's, he, he can't go out. He can't reach out. He's immobilized. And more than anything, imagine being put, at prison, put in prison at your own expense. That's, that's the way it worked back then. So if you didn't have money to support yourself, you starved. And so this is why, part of why he's so thankful for the Philippians. And in other letters, he, he thanks people for bringing him support because otherwise he would have starved in jail. People were bringing him his food and, his, and, and giving him money to support himself. And so Paul's there waiting the possibility of his own death. And I don't know if you've ever wondered. So the, the book of Acts ends there. And it's, it's so tantalizing because Luke doesn't say, oh yeah, and this is what happened. He got let out and he went to Spain and, you know, or, or even Paul was, was executed in Rome at the end of his trial. He doesn't tell us. Now, I think it's most likely that he's writing before those things actually happened. So that's an explanation. But a lot of people look at the rest of Acts and they, they, don't, they don't think that. I think either way, there's a deeper purpose as to why Luke finishes the book of Acts right there. And it's this. If Luke finished the book of Acts by telling us Paul was released or Paul was executed, you know, that would almost give you the sense that the empire won. The empire cut off this man at the prime of his ministry. And, and so the, the gospel was hindered. And yet the message of the, the book of Acts that I think Luke is trying to give us is the church is continuing this gospel unhindered. You've probably heard it said that, you know, the, the history of the church is Acts 29. We are the continuance of that. And so the empire did not have the last word in Paul's life. They did not stop in him and his message. Luke has an even more important truth to tell us than about martyrdom, than just about another missionary journey. The gospel goes forth unhindered. And so from, from Luke's perspective, from Paul's perspective, that the preaching of the kingdom, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus, they could have full assurance, full confidence that it was something that they could simply proclaim. Jesus is Lord. It could not be hindered. Because here's the thing, the power of the gospel, it's not something that becomes, the gospel is not something that becomes true as you preach it, as you proclaim it, as you're persuasively, winsomely sharing it. It's not something that becomes true as that. It's true in itself. And so all we do is proclaim it. We state it. And so this has significance for us today because I think, uh, you know, every so often there comes a law or a proposition or, or some, some person and, and people get really nervous and they'll say, if this gets passed, 
or if this person comes into power, our ability to share the gospel, our ability to preach the gospel will be hindered. And the thing is, if, if you take Paul's perspective, if you take seriously what he's saying, he says, no, it can't. There's no such thing as a hindered gospel. There's no such thing as a hindered gospel. No one, no government, no power, no authority, no, no power or scheme of man or, or hell could hinder this good news of Jesus Christ. It is a fixed reality. We simply proclaim it. Now, here's the thing. So no one can hinder the gospel. All that the world can do, the worst that the devil can do, is increase the cost of proclaiming the gospel. Make it more costly for us to state this reality. And so Paul was living in a time where it was extremely costly to state that reality. Many Christians around the world today live in a similar reality. And whether or not we do in the future of this nation, we've enjoyed generations where it has not been costly. We've had a a, a level of freedom that is amazing that so many Christians would long to see. But here's the thing. Even if the worst should happen, the gospel will not be hindered. It can't be. And so the second thing that we have to know to have joy in the proclamation of the gospel is this. The word of the Lord carries intrinsic power that supersedes human frailty. The word of the Lord has power inside of it that goes beyond your faults and your weaknesses. Now, (laughs) what this makes me think of is, I've told some of you this, this happens without fail. Every time I think, I, I get up here and I give a message and I think, wow, that really bombed. That's probably the, you know, I should probably quit. This is the worst thing anyone's ever heard. And I, I'm serious. Every single time that happens, I should, I should really learn to expect it because every single time that happens, those are the messages that God uses so much more than the ones that I felt really good about. The ones where I get up there, I'm like, yeah, wow, this is good. I can't wait to give this. And it's like crickets, you know? The ones where I get up and, and there's, I, I feel a sense of frailty. It's like the, the gospel goes forth even more. There's a power within it that is independent of the messenger. The power's in the message. And yes, it's not just a truth to be, to, be, to be conceived of intellectually. It's a truth to be lived. And so your life as the messenger does matter. But the thing is, it goes beyond our frailties. And so... <laughs> The truth of it, the power of it, doesn't come from, when, from, from how eloquently it's stated or how eloquently it's defended. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. It doesn't become true when it's explained very well or even when it's accepted by a person. It is true in itself and it has a power in and of itself that you encounter. And so this is, this is why you can have joy in evangelism. Now, for those of us who are not kind of spiritually gifted as evangelists, it can be a really nerve-wracking thing because you kind of know, like, oh, you know, I'm supposed to be sharing my faith, and, you know, and, and I don't feel like I'm doing it enough or, or well enough. And here's the thing. You can, you can take the pressure off your shoulders. It doesn't become an excuse, but you can take the pressure off your shoulders because here's the thing. The gospel is true even when you are inadequate of your explanation of it. And here's the thing. You don't make it true. And here's the other thing. You don't save people. 
the Holy Spirit does. And so if you're carrying the burden of, man, I got I to gotta make sure that I share this thing perfectly well. Otherwise, this person's not going to get saved. Well, that's actually, you're taking on a responsibility, a role that actually belongs to the Holy Spirit. We do our utmost, but then we give it to him. And, and the results are in his hands. And so <laughs> the Holy Spirit saves us. We don't make it true as we do it well. And so here's the thing. You know, we don't have to be weird about it. <laughs> we can be so weird about sharing the gospel so awkward about it. And here's the question I want to I ask you, okay? If you've ever felt, I've felt that, okay? I've been, I did a, 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 like a, a youth discipleship thing called Year of Your Life, and we had to go out and we had to do the street dances on the corners. And, you know, <laughs> I don't know what came of that, but God used it somehow. But, but <laughs> here's the question I want to ask. If you feel awkward, if you feel weird sharing the gospel, I want to ask you this. Is it good news? Is it good news? Do people in slavery need to find out that they are set free? Yes, they do. <laughs> they do. Would it be good? Would it be a good thing if the people, that, people in your family, the people you work with, the people you, you, you live next to, the people you encounter day to day, would it be a good thing if they encountered this freedom in Jesus? Yes, it would it would be a good thing. And so we can experience all this, all this anxiety around sharing the gospel, but I think a lot of that can begin to fade away when you, when you realize, hold on, this, this is actually good. This is good news. This is good for them. This isn't just me trying to, you know, convert them to my way of thinking and my, my particular understanding of what being a Christian is. No, this is me and offering, proclaiming this reality that is true in Jesus. And if they would step into that reality, their entire life would be changed. That is good. So the question for us, do we believe that this is actually good news? Good news that it would be genuinely good for those you love and work with and interact with to hear. To, to encounter. That's far more complicated than that, I know, and we can get into that another time, but that's, that's a starting place. You're never going to share something. You're never going to, you know, be joyful at the proclamation of the gospel if you don't really know and understand that it's actually good. It's not just right. It's good. So, Actually, what Paul's saying, it goes a lot further than this, because not only can you have joy in your own sharing of the gospel, what he's actually talking about is he's got joy in other people's sharing of the gospel. He's got joy at the mere fact that evangelism is happening. Proclamation is happening. So not only can you have joy in your own evangelism, you, you, you can rejoice in other people's. You can even rejoice in your critics' evangelism or your theological or political opponent's evangelism. <laughs> That's a tough one. Because there were, there were people in Rome and other places who, to quote, this is what he says in verses 15 and 17, he says, they're preaching out of envy, preaching out of rivalry, preaching out of selfish ambition, preaching insincerely. 
And Paul says they were even doing it to personally harm him. They were trying to cause trouble for Paul. And so no doubt these people were, were happy at what was happening to him in a way. Maybe they would never have said that, but they were, they were happy that Paul was actually incarcerated. And, said, and yet, what does Paul say? He says, I rejoice at the proclamation. However mismotivated, however impure the motives, he says, what does it matter? Christ is preached. And I rejoice because of this. So every sharing of the gospel, whether you think it's an ineffective way, whether you think it's a, not a fruitful way, whether it seems like it's ignored, whether you feel like it, this, this is a stupid way to share the gospel. <laughs> We can actually have an element of joy in that if the word is being proclaimed, if the gospel's going out, because it can't be hindered. You know, and, and this makes me, think of, makes me think of Kanye West's whole spiritual journey of the last few years. And if, if you don't know about this, you can go look it up. I shouldn't have to tell you who Kanye West is. Okay. Look him up. He's a big deal. But he had this, this, this turn towards Christianity. And there, there were a lot of ways you could be skeptical because he's a master of controversy and, and, and marketing. And so you could say, oh, this is just a marketing ploy. And, and, you know, we don't know the motives of his heart. But I, you know, I actually looked at that and I saw what he was putting out and I listened to the music and I said, you know what? There's good news here. There's good news being proclaimed here. And so I don't, I don't really have to concern myself with those things. That's between him and God. But what I can rejoice at is the fact that good news is going out. So I want to offer one caveat, which is this. Paul is not, he is not excusing hypocrisy. He's not excusing heresy or compromise in the gospel. He's not saying that your life doesn't matter so long as your theology is good. Paul you know, you read the whole of his writings, Paul does not mince his words when it comes to false teachers, when it comes to religious hypocrites, when it comes to legalists within the church. Paul has nothing kind to say to that. What he is saying is this, that despite the human frailties in the messengers, the gospel has a power in itself that still bears fruit that we can rejoice in. And so that's why Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. He says, This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. God's word is not chained. And so the third thing following on from this, I'll go quickly through these last couple, is that the third thing we have to know to cultivate this kind of joy is that joy unexpressed is not really joy. Joy unexpressed is not biblically what we would call joy. The word for joy in Hebrew is simcha. We're affiliated with a, a messianic synagogue called Bet Simcha, house of joy. And so biblically speaking, when you look at the definition of joy, what you see is it's not joy if it's not expressed. It's not joy if it's not expressed. Joy is the type of thing that just comes out of you. All of us have our hobbies, our, our, our little things that we love to do, and they, they're, they're good for us because they bring us joy. And what happens when, you're, when, you're, you, know, when you just love something, it, it pours out of you. You can't wait to tell somebody. If you're really into music and you discover this incredibly cool new band, you, know, you want to tell 
your friends. You don't want to tell too many people because then they get too popular, you know, and then they're not cool anymore. But you want to tell the certain people that you respect and you, it's, it's something that comes out of you. You know, when a person is in love, love is so amazing because it brings us this joy. You can't help but tell somebody, man, I, I met this person. Joy is the type of thing that comes out of you. And so the Philippians expressed their joy in partnering with Paul, in giving Paul funding for his mission. Paul expresses his joy in his letter to the churches. He expresses it in his prayers for them, in his continuing in preaching, even from prison. And so here's the thing about Paul's critics, the people that he mentions here. We don't know really what they were doing, what they were saying. We don't know what they were getting out of their preaching. But we do know one thing. They weren't getting joy as a result. When you're preaching out of those things, when you're proclaiming out of envy and strife and selfless ambition and all those things, you're not getting joy in return from that. And so it's the question for us, are we getting joy out of our walk with God? You know, we all hear those words of Jesus. When Jesus says, what's the kingdom like? Well, he says, it's like a man who finds treasure buried in a field and out of the joy in his heart, he goes and sells everything. He purchases the field so that he can possess that treasure, right? And so we all hear that and we say, yeah, I've got the joy of the Lord. And, you know, sometimes you want to say, well, you might want to inform your face. If you have the joy of the Lord, (laughs) I'm in that boat too, guys, but... (laughs) <laughs> you know, another thing we'll say is, well, joy, you know, yeah, I've got the joy of the Lord, but joy, joy is not happiness. You know, and I think that's true, but it's true in the sense that joy, you know, happiness is like a, 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 like a, a flimsy baseline that joy encompasses within it and goes far beyond. So, you know, you can be happy generally when things are going well. If you're on your deathbed in agony, suffering, you know, desiring even to die for the suffering to go away, I think it's very hard to be happy. But you can have joy. How's that? Because I've been at those bedsides and and when I've seen people in that kind of agony and when a loved one walks through the door, they get that same look in their eye of joy. And when they think of being with their savior, when when they know that heaven is near, there's that same glint of joy in their eyes. And so joy encompasses happiness, but it goes far more. Joy is something you can have even in the midst of suffering. Happiness, I don't think so. Joy is the unmistakable mark of the kingdom of God. Read the Bible and tell me that's not true. Tell me, there's, there, tell me that joy is not the unmistakable mark of the kingdom of God. Wherever the kingdom of God goes, there's joy as a result. Now, I want to tell you, we, Howard's testimony earlier, his, his, his encouragement, wherever you are this morning, you have reason to be joyful. You have reason to have joy. Now, some of us are in such hard situations where it's really hard to hear that and really hard to receive that. But here's the thing. Jesus is Lord. He's still Lord. And whatever else is happening, that is reason to be joyful. When you know that, when you really know that, it has to come out somehow. When you have joy, it has to leak. And it's not out of guilt. It's not out of of obligation that we share this good news. It's out of joy. And so 
To move on to the next one, you might say, well, how can I be joyful when the body of Christ has hurt me so much or the body of Christ is so messed up? And that's a real thing. But here's what Paul shows us. It's the fourth thing that we need to know that cultivates our joy, which is this. There is a unity that proceeds from loving wisely. There's a unity that proceeds from loving wisely. Because I don't know about you. I think if there's one thing that can rob your joy the quickest, it's envy, strife, dissension, bickering, gossip, bitterness within the church. You can, be, you can be joyful when you're suffering persecution because you, you, you can stand in the fact that you're, you're doing God's will. But when you're, when you're facing internal resistance from brothers and sisters, that robs your joy like nothing else. And if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. The greatest threat to our joy is not external to the church. It's internal to the church. Because remember, joy is relational. Joy is relational. And so... I don't care how good the band is. I don't care how good the preacher is. If there's anger and resentment and bitterness and and rancor in your close relationships within the church, joy is inhibited. Your joy cannot abound. And so that doesn't mean you never critique. It doesn't mean you never point out wrongdoing. Of course you do. But, But here's the thing. Paul points us to love, but he points us to love with knowledge and discernment. Right? In fact, I would say you can't actually love without those things because love is, despite what the world says, love is not blind. It's anything but blind. You can't love until you actually see the person. And so we need discernment to maintain our joy. We need wisdom in our love in order to preserve the unity that protects our joy. I'll say that again. We need discernment to maintain our joy. We need wisdom in our love in order to preserve that unity without which it's hard to preserve our joy. And so what do you see Paul doing? You see that when, when, he's, when he feels personally under attack, what does he do? He shows grace. He shows mercy to his critics as long as Christ is being proclaimed. He has no problem doing that. But when he sees that the gospel itself is under attack— He's extremely direct. He does not tolerate those attacks. He takes false teachers on head to head and and he tells Timothy, don't even tolerate them. Command them to stop. And so if we want to cultivate our joy in proclamation, then we have to pursue unity by loving wisely. Giving grace for personal attacks, not giving grace for the things that attack the gospel. And so... When you do that, I think what happens is you can begin to hang out with people who see things differently than you. You can minister with people who have different styles, who have different theological convictions. And we're not talking about core essential doctrines. We're talking about, you know, secondary tertiary things. And and once you get past that, you can rejoice in the gospel going forth. You can rejoice in it. And so the fifth thing that we know from this passage is this, that there's no such thing as failed evangelism where our testimony is true. This is the very last thing I want to say. I'm going to uh, ask the band to, to come back up and, and we'll finish with a song of joy. But this is the thing that I want to encourage you with here because we're talking about evangelism, we're talking about sharing your faith. There is no such thing as failed evangelism where our testimony is true. And it reminds me of the time when, when 
Selena and I went to do our ministry training. We were, the, the emphasis was on apologetics and evangelism. And so we're, we're in the, the upper echelons of British academia. And honestly, I was absolutely terrified because I thought, I'm going to meet this double, triple PhD who's just going to completely decimate my faith because I won't have a, a, a response to their critiques, to their problems. And so we were around all these really smart people, and I was absolutely terrified because I was locating the power of the evangelism, the effectiveness of it, the success of it within myself. And if I fail, well, then the evangelism has failed. And you can, you can begin playing in the background. And, and here's the thing. I remember the time, and I want to encourage you with this. I remember the time when it all shifted for me. We were, we were asked to lead an alpha course, lead an alpha table. And so we're sitting there with all these brilliant students, and it was on the topic of prayer. And uh, we were going around the table, and the, we're, people were supposed to say, well, when's the time that you prayed, and what happened? And one after one, people were saying, well, I prayed for this, and God didn't turn up. And I prayed for this, and I was praying for my friend, and they died. And I prayed for this, and, and you know, nothing seemed to happen. And so I'm sitting there, you know, it's, it was this creeping death arriving to my seat. And I'm saying, oh gosh, what am I going to say? How can I give a defense of prayer and the effectiveness of, of you know, God's miraculous power? And, and this is what's going through my head. And I felt the Lord just say, tell him, tell him about your friend, Wayne. So I had a friend, Wayne, who, one of my best friends growing up, he was older than me, and he, he, was, he was a pastor at, the, at this time, and it was my 18th birthday, and he didn't turn up to my birthday. And so we're, we're wondering, where did he go? And it turns out he had stolen a whole bunch of money and, and taken off from Battelle. He'd taken off, and no one knew where he was. And this is like my best friend. And so every single day, I was— in our, in our school library, sitting at a table during lunch and just praying. And all I could bring myself to say was, Lord, protect him. Lord, protect him. Lord, protect him. For, for weeks. And so we, we didn't hear about him. A couple months passed, and there was a former police officer that, that knew Battelle, and he, he gives us a call one day, and he says, hey, I found Wayne. I, I bumped into him at a train station in a city that neither of them live in. He happens to bump into him. And, and, and he, he has him call home. And, and, we, and we bring him back home and he comes home. And I see him for the first time and I, I threw my arms around him. I hug him. And, and he said, you know, Ian, I was trying to kill myself. And every time I would overdose more and more and more. And every time I kept waking up. I couldn't do it. And I knew right in that moment, God heard my prayer. God listened to my prayer. And that, you know what, that, that little testimony, so simple, right? That little testimony completely changed the atmosphere of that table. And all of a sudden you saw all this, all this negativity and criticism and, 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 you know, suddenly shifted to, wow, maybe, maybe God can do something. Maybe prayer can work. Maybe God does hear us. And you know what? That's an atmosphere where faith can happen. 
And so I want to encourage you, you know, when you find yourself in situations where you have an opportunity to share the gospel, we're not about being annoying, pestering, you know, no one wants to be that kind of, of sharer of the gospel because it turns the good news into annoying news, all right? But you will find yourself, when you're faithful to Jesus, when your joy is pouring out of you, you're going to find yourself in situations where you have an opportunity to proclaim him to someone, to proclaim some good news to them. And I want to encourage you that in that moment, don't put your trust and your faith on your knowledge and your ability to explain and defend and, you know, wheel out all the arguments and the, trust him. It says he will give us the words to say when we're put before the authorities and before people. Let your hope shine out. And a lot of times that comes through a story. And let me tell you, those things, despite our frailty, the gospel cannot be hindered. Even when it looks like that person's totally resistant. I've heard so many stories of, you know, 10, 20, 30 years down the line, that seed starts to bear fruit in a person's life. And so we have to do our job. We have to do our job of translating, of, you know, God speaks to us in ways that we understand. We believe in the, in the scripture in our own language. And so when you share the gospel, you should translate it to words that people understand. All right. And so I want to give you some homework on that. If you've never thought about what is your gospel elevator pitch, right? If you had to explain the gospel in 30 seconds, you know, in a minute or less to a person using no Christianese, how would you do that? And if you've never thought about that, it's a really great exercise. Go home and try and do that, right? You know, write it out, learn it. And, and again, avoid all Christian jargon, and it's actually quite a challenging exercise, but I'm going to tell you, 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 when you, when you do that, when you do that work of translation, you find out this is good news everywhere. Whether you're here, whether you're in, in, you know, the furthest reaches of the world, this is good news everywhere. And it has a power in and of itself that's independent of you. So there may be someone here who's listening, there may be someone online or, or watching this later on where you, you hear me talking about the joy that's available in Jesus and you realize, you know what? I've, I've never experienced that joy. I've never accepted that good news of Jesus. Well, there's an opportunity for you right now. Every single moment he's inviting you and saying, come into this gift that I've got for you. All your frailty, all, your, 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 all the things that are keeping you locked in, those habits that you can't break, the things that are destroying your life, I came and I've set you free from that. There is a new reality, just like the Emancipation Proclamation, you are declared free. All you have to do is accept it. Come to me. And the way you can do that is simply by talking to him. He's a person you can talk to him and you say, Jesus, I'm sorry for the mess that I've made of my life. All the ways that I know that I've, I've done what's wrong, disobeyed you, broken your heart. Jesus, thank you that you've forgiven me. I accept that truth right now. And I want to tell you that's because he died for you. That's because he actually rose from the dead for you as well. And you can say, Jesus, I want to live in that joy. I want to become your, your, your child right now. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. 
And when you do that, he promises to come into your life and change everything. And so if if you're praying that right now, come and talk to me. Come and talk to any of the the, the leaders here. Our ushers actually have information that we want to give to you to help you walk this out because it's not something that we do alone. This is not a individualistic thing. It's a family thing. And I'm going to have a stand now. And if you're watching online and you prayed that prayer, please, please stay to the end of the, the broadcast because information about how we can help you with walking that out with Jesus as well. But Lord, as we, as we end our service here and we want to we close again in, in worshiping you in song, Lord, we thank you for the joy that we can have in the gospel. Lord, it's a joy that is not dependent on our power, on our understanding, on our intelligence. It's a power that is within the gospel itself. So Lord, make us people that, that offer joy to the world. Lord, what do we have if we don't offer joy to the world? What do we have? May we be people that just like the man who found the, the, the treasure buried in the field, that it's out of the joy in our hearts that we offer you everything so that we could have you. Lord, we pray all this. We trust you. Give us the words to speak when we're in those moments where we're able to proclaim your good news. Help us to translate out of love for, the, for, for whoever we're speaking to. And we pray all this in the power, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to the NC4 podcast. For more info, visit our website at nc4.org. We believe in the power of a connected life. If you prayed to give your life to Jesus today, we'd love to help you walk it out together. Just text the word Jesus to 610-816-6062.